0: hello and welcome back to the killer kind podcast. It's your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. I apologize for taking so long to get this episode out to you guys. I always do this. I overcommit when it comes to October, such a busy month for us. Plus this one was hard to put together, honestly, because there are so many rabbit holes I could have gone down. But with that said, this is our third and final Killer October episode, and this is one that's a little different because we are covering a case shrouded in conspiracy. When you guys said you wanted to hear a conspiracy theory episode, I was excited, but really I had no idea what I wanted to do. Did I want to go massive conspiracy theories like predictions of 9-11? or the Illuminati, which can be pretty controversial, which is so not me. Or did I want to go massive conspiracies surrounding celebrity deaths, like how Marilyn Monroe and Kurt Cobain were definitely murdered, not committing suicide. Or how I don't believe JFK was killed by a lone gunman. Or how some believe Elvis and Tupac are still alive. All of these people I've had a personal love for for as long as I can remember and maybe one day I'll dive into those cases for you here on the podcast but honestly I'd probably need like a whole month or two to prepare for one of those cases. There are just there's just so much information out there. However, Now that I mentioned it, I'm sure you're probably thinking to yourself that you need me to cover one of those ASAP. (laughs) So head over to the podcast Instagram and let me know which of those you'd like me to cover first. After this episode comes out, I'll drop a poll or something on my Instagram story and let you guys cast your vote. Now, today's case to me fit both the mysterious death and conspiracy theory vibes that we're going for. And I'm sorry if you hate the word vibe. (laughs) And I knew it would be one I wanted to cover, though. And honestly, one I'm surprised I haven't covered yet. I literally had to go back in my list of episodes just to make sure I haven't. (laughs) This week, we are covering the infamous Elisa Lamb case that took place at the even more infamous Cecil Hotel almost get chills just saying the Cecil because of all the dark energy and tragic events it's known for, which we will also get into today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the Cecil Hotel and the mysterious death of Elisa Lamb. The body of 21-year-old Elisa Lamb was found on February 19th 2013 in a large water tank at the top of the infamous Cecil Hotel. And before we get into her death, I think you need to understand the mystery surrounding the hotel itself and why so many believe Elisa was just another victim of the hotel's dark history. The Cecil Hotel, now known as the Stay on Main, is located on 640 South Main Street in Los Angeles, California. Built in 1924 by William Banks Hanner, it was built as high as legally allowed at the time, standing 14 stories high and holding 700 rooms. And the hotel was beautiful when it was first built. All of the best interior design with a stunning marble lobby, stained glass windows, potted palm trees, and alabaster statues throughout. It was designed for high-class businessmen and tourists, However, it didn't remain a luxury hotel long, especially after the Great Depression and the 1940s. The hotel had to stop charging luxury rates and offered more affordable rooms, and if you're familiar with what's called Skid Row, the hotel sits right in the center. If you've never heard of Skid Row, it's a 50-square-block area about a four-mile radius in Los Angeles where close to 10,000 homeless people live, which started in the mid-1930s, again, around the Great Depression. And with that many homeless people in one area, you can only imagine the high crime rate. Jack Charles on YouTube did a 17-minute video recently just walking around Skid Row, and honestly, I teared up. It was so sad. I highly recommend, though, that you check that out so you can kind of get an idea of what kind of area we're dealing with here. But moving on. So, the Cecil is known by multiple names, actually. The Deadliest Hotel in L.A., L.A.'s Tower of Terror, and L.A.'s Most Haunted Hotel, And let's get into some of that dark history. So, the first reported death at the Cecil took place in 1926 when a retired mining employee, William McKay, died of natural causes in his room. However, things take a more gruesome turn when in 1927, 52-year-old Percy Ormond Cook shot himself in the head inside his hotel room after failing to reconcile with his wife and child. The next reported death occurred in 1931. W.K. Norton, checking into the Cecil under a fake name, was found dead in his room after consuming poison capsules. Now, let me pause and say, there were other disturbing things happening during this time as well that I don't want to get into, like how a woman overdosed on barbiturates and was taken to a local hospital where she later died. And barbiturates are a depressant, similar to what Marilyn Monroe reportedly ingested to supposedly commit suicide. In 1931, someone was arrested for trying to sell 10 pounds of opium, worth about $156,000 in today's money. The Los Angeles Times reported a few of these events, and in their articles, they made it clear that the Cecil already had a bad reputation. Death and tragedy only continued to surround the hotel over the years. Grace Margot, a 25 year old woman, supposedly fell or jumped from her room on the ninth floor in March 1937. And I say supposedly because some believe the man she was staying with pushed her out the window. He claimed to have been asleep at the time and couldn't explain her actions. That's another case for another day, but the truth is there are hundreds of cases that could come from the Cecil, including one that I've already covered, the Black Dahlia. I released the episode last October, but in that I mentioned that she was reportedly seen at the Cecil's hotel bar a few days before she was found brutally murdered. In 1962, a woman by the name of Pauline Otten was having marital problems. She and her husband checked into a room on the ninth floor to discuss their marriage. At some point, the husband leaves the room to have dinner alone, but Pauline stays behind. She writes a suicide note to her husband and jumps out the window to her death. Not only did she die from the fall, tragically, she landed on top of an elderly man, casually walking down the sidewalk, and they both died instantly. I do believe there were a total of 15 suicides, a few under suspicion, but regardless, due to the amount of suicides that have taken place, many people believe the Cecil is cursed. And I can't say I don't blame people for believing that. There are many reasons why you would think it's cursed, including the murders that have occurred at the hotel. Now, despite speculation that there were several murders that had taken place at the hotel, there were really only a handful carried out inside. However, the main reason people believe more murders took place are because the Night Stalker himself stayed at the hotel for a period of time. That's right, Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker, who killed a total of 13 women in their sleep, and after his arrest in 1985, it was discovered that he had been staying at the Cecil Hotel. Now, he never actually murdered anyone inside the hotel, but he did throw out his blood-soaked clothes in the hotel dumpsters and would walk inside up to his room on the 14th floor, sometimes naked or in his underwear which some claim wouldn't have warranted a second look by regulars at the hotel. So, needless to say, the hotel is beyond creepy, which is why many people believe it's also haunted. I mean, rightfully so. In October 2015, American Horror Story Hotel was released. The hotel in the show is loosely based on the Cecil. There was murder, guests who have haunted the hotel for years, and the list goes on. I mean, that was probably one of my favorite seasons of American Horror Story and probably the last one I've actually watched, but that's irrelevant. (laughs) I say all this to say, the Cecil is very popular and well known for its own horror. And the case we're talking about today only adds to the paranormal, murderous, and cursed feelings against the place. So let's continue on into the death of Elisa Lam. Elisa Lam was born on April 30th, 1991. Elisa's parents immigrated to Canada from Hong Kong, where they opened a restaurant in the Burnaby area of British Columbia. Elisa went on to the University of British Columbia, where she had some trouble getting through school because Elisa appeared to suffer from mental health issues, including depression and bipolar Elisa had a blog and was very active on Tumblr. She made several posts, especially in 2012, expressing her feelings about school and life in general. She explained thinking her depression started when she stopped running track in high school. She said she lacked self-discipline to train and then continued to lack that self-discipline. Now, she was taking medication for bipolar disorder I'm not sure when exactly she started taking this medication, but we know she was taking it in January 2013, which is when her death actually takes place. But before we get into that, I feel like you need to know why she ended up at the Cecil Hotel. So during her time at the University of British Columbia, she posted online again about struggling with her classes due to her struggles with sleeping. She explained she felt lost and felt she was much further behind in life than her peers. She wrote on Tumblr, quote, You're always haunted by the idea that you're wasting your life. In January 2012, she made a post saying that she had some sort of relapse at the start of that semester and had caused her to drop several classes. She said due to her health issues, she's completed only three courses in the three years she's been in college. She expressed how frustrating it has been for her. Now, according to her family, who tried to keep her mental illness private, Elisa had no suicidal ideations or attempts, which is important to note here in our case today. However, she had been known to stop taking her medication for periods of time, and it would cause her to have hallucinations, which would cause her to hide under her bed in fear of whatever she was seeing. She was actually hospitalized for one of these episodes, too. Now, she did have a passion and a very creative side that she desperately wanted to give more attention to, but again, her mental health sort of held her back. Elisa loved fashion. She posted about it constantly on her Tumblr, and yes, her mental health, she said, held her back, but she was also very much an introvert. She talked about how she had nobody to share her life with, However, before she left on her trip to California, she posted on Tumblr that her friends and family had a going-away party for her. She said, quote, I had a catch-up reunion with high school and elementary people as sort of a bon voyage soiree. She went on to say, I am fatigued in recovery from throwing it, but I am so full, I suppose the term would be, as Dumbledore says, love. She goes on to say, "...because last night was evidence that I do have amazing, beautiful things in my life. And even though everyone is busy and going off doing great things, they do care about me." She said, "...I'm not a professional depressed person. I am so much more than that. And these people are my reminders that I am very lucky. Life is long and difficult, and people will always be stupid and complain." But it is worth it as long as you have special moments. She finishes by saying, Thank you, friends, family, and Tumblr. The world is just awesome. It's a little ominous that she's been struggling and having a hard time, yet she has this party and realizes how lucky she is and how happy she is to be alive. Sadly, little does she know, the trip she was celebrating would lead to her demise. So let's get into this trip she was taking. She called it her West Coast tour. She was going to do this alone and her parents weren't too sure about it, but she did promise to call every night at the end of the day. And bear with me, there isn't much I could find about her trip, like when she left Canada, when she arrived in California. I read somewhere that she didn't start her trip in Los Angeles at the Cecil, which I believe to be true, but most articles and reports made about Elisa's case start with her time at the mysterious hotel and the infamous surveillance footage, which we'll get into. So not much is out there about the trip prior to that, but we do know that Elisa arrived to California sometime mid-January 2013. She posted pictures at the San Diego Zoo and then made her way to Los Angeles a few days later. On January 26th, Elisa arrived in Los Angeles from San Diego on the Amtrak train. It's unclear which hotel she stayed in initially or what she did in LA for two days, but on January 28th, she checked in to the Cecil Hotel. However, it wasn't called the Cecil when she booked the room. It was actually called Stay on Main. The Cecil Hotel had turned the bottom three floors into a nice, newly renovated hotel and called it Stay on Main obviously to attract more guests. It had a separate entrance and lobby than the Cecil, but the reality was it was the same place. If you weren't from LA, you wouldn't know the difference, especially when booking it online. Every floor above the 3 stale stay-on-name floors is home to long-term residents who live at the Cecil, just as they've done for many years before. One thing to note is that the two hotels, if you will, share the elevators. So the long-term residents and the stale main guests all share the same elevators. But everything is pretty much separated. Just keep that in mind. Elisa Lamb arrived at the Cecil on Monday, January 28th. She planned to stay for four nights, checking out on February 1st, where she would continue her final destination of the trip, which was Santa Cruz. Now, originally, she booked a hostel-style room, which is a shared room at a much cheaper rate, if you're not familiar. It's usually a large open room with a bathroom, maybe a kitchenette, and some bunk beds, or multiple twin-size beds throughout. However, on the 31st, Elisa was asked to move to a private room because those who were sharing the hostel with her complained of her odd behavior. Now, I could find anywhere that any of these people were interviewed to know what kind of behavior they were referring to. I'm sure they were interviewed by police, but there was no exact details of her actions that I could find. Now, in the Netflix documentary Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, they do mention that Lam was leaving cryptic notes to her roommates. And she had been escorted off a live TV taping in Burbank after leaving like a rambling letter to the host. Again, unsure what these notes said, but obviously, everyone who received one was disturbed by it. After having her move to a private room, it was apparent that the hotel staff didn't do anything really to ask if she was okay, which they have since received backlash for. Clearly, she was expressing erratic behavior. However, in the documentary, previous hotel manager, Amy Price, explained that odd behavior is the norm. At the Cecil. And they basically just don't get involved unless they have to. Which again, I understand, but obviously it's hard not to think that if the hotel would have done more to help her, could they have prevented her death? I guess we'll never know. Moving on. So she is moved to the private room on January 31st. And that's when everything takes a dark turn. As I mentioned, she promised her parents, she would stay in contact with them daily, and she called them at least once on the 31st. She was also seen at the last bookstore, which was right around the corner from the Cecil. A bookstore employee, Katie Orphan, said she remembers seeing her that day. She said she stood out to her because of how outgoing she was. She described her as outgoing, but said she was almost aggressive with how she interacted with people at the store. She would go up to different people asking for places she should go in the city and how to get there because she has to take public transportation. Katie described her as an odd duck, but someone she could relate to. She said she knows how she must have felt in a new city, wanting to find people to connect with, but having that odd personality, she probably struggled with connecting. But Katie said she spoke to her and the two had a nice conversation. She also said in a later interview, that she always makes it a point to say that Elisa was asking Katie if the books she was buying were too heavy to travel with, and that she was talking about taking certain books home for her family. Clearly making plans to go home, which again, something that's important to our story here. So on that Thursday, the 31st, Elisa is seen at the bookstore. But other than that, she is known to have been alone in her hotel room for the rest of the day. But this is the last day anyone ever heard from Elisa. On February 1st, she was supposed to check out of her hotel room and plan to head to Santa Cruz. But the first came and went, and nobody heard from her. Immediately worried about not hearing from their daughter, Elisa's parents contacted the Vancouver police and they directed them to the LAPD. It's unclear if police immediately went down to the hotel or not, but either the LAPD or hotel staff checked on Elisa in her room, and they found most of Elisa's belongings, her wallet with her ID, laptop, clothing, and a few bottles of her medications that she had been described for her bipolar disorder. There was no signs of forced entry into her hotel room, But there was also no sign of the 21-year-old college student. And at this point, she is declared a missing person. A week after she is reported missing, the LAPD conducted a press conference on February 7th to announce the Canadian native was missing. In the press conference, you can see her parents and her sister standing behind the detective next to a large picture of Elisa. The detective explains that she was staying at the Cecil and never checked out and that they were in the process of looking through security camera footage. During the press conference, reporters are allowed to ask questions for the detective to answer, and a reporter asks, Do you think anybody warned her about the Cecil Hotel and the dangers of being in the Skid Row area alone as a female? The detective explained no. She likely wasn't aware of the kind of area she was in. The LAPD spent a total of two weeks scouring the hotel itself along with canine units to try to locate Elisa. However, the dogs were unable to pick up on her scent, which was odd. Plus, there was no sign that she had left the hotel after returning back from visiting the bookstore. This was confirmed by two hotel workers that she did make her way back, but she was nowhere to be found. On February 13th, police released the now infamous security footage of Elisa Lamb. Inside a hotel elevator. I will leave a link to this in the show notes so you can check it out. It's something you have to see for yourself, but many people wondered why the police would even release the footage. Some said it was just to see what she looked like and the way she carried herself. However, her actions in the video were clearly out of the norm for her and very bizarre. I'll walk you through it, but if you're able to pull up the video and follow along here, I highly recommend it. So, let's get into it. The video is approximately two and a half minutes long. When the security footage starts, you can see the elevator door open, and Elisa Lamb walks inside. There is no one else inside. She's wearing what appears to be a red zip-up jacket, dark-colored long shorts. We find out later that they're men's like basketball shorts, and some sandals. Kind of looks like chacos if you're familiar with the brand kind of that strappy outdoor sandal so anyway she walks inside and bends down to get eye level with the elevator buttons she sort of swings her arm around and starts pressing all of the buttons in the middle row from top to bottom she steps back in the corner of the elevator and appears to wait for the doors to close and you know move (laughs) but the door remains open When the door doesn't close, she slowly takes a step towards the open door and quickly steps outside, peeking side to side very fast, and jumps back inside the elevator. Many speculate that she's looking for someone or trying to catch someone in the act, whatever that may be. After stepping back inside the elevator, she steps with her back up against one side and then steps over again with her back sort of towards the elevator buttons. Once again, many people believe she is hiding from something or someone at this point. She then slowly starts to peek out of the elevator again, sort of half jumps completely out of the elevator, again like she's trying to catch someone. She takes a side step and then a step back inside the elevator for a second, then steps back outside, then walks to the side, almost out of view of the camera. She stays just outside the elevator for quite a while, maybe a minute or two. And during that time, you can see her lifting her hands to her head, and it can kind of look like she's talking to someone. But then she turns around and slowly walks back into the elevator. As she does, she holds on to the sides of the elevator doors, almost like she's losing her balance or trying to hold herself up. Once back inside the elevator, she appears to push all of the same elevator buttons again and steps back outside. She appears to be confused as to why the elevator door isn't closing, and she starts to wave her hands around just inside the door. Many people have speculated that When she does this, her hands look odd. Her fingers look very long, almost inhuman. After that, though, she continues to move her hands around. It's unclear what she's doing with her hands. It looks like she's counting her fingers, but it's kind of hard to tell because the video is fuzzy because of course it is, right? Either way, she continues to stand outside for a minute or two and then casually walks off camera and is never seen again. But the footage keeps rolling. The door remains open for about a minute and then closes. And it appears to start going to the floors Elisa had pushed the buttons for. Because you can tell it seems to go either up or down. And opens once. Waits a second and then closes. Goes to another floor. Opens and you can tell it's a different floor. And after that, the video stops. Now, if you're not able to watch the video, I'm sorry, I don't know how well I went over that. You'll see, if you are able to see it, though, you'll see that it is pretty grainy and fuzzy. So it's not like we can clearly make out the elevator buttons or details of Elisa's face or anything like that. Some actually feel it. her face is pixelated or her mouth is pixelated at times. Which I could see that, definitely looking at it. It looks like it was specifically pixelating her mouth. But it's already a crappy video, so it's hard to say for sure. But another thing to note is that the timestamp is pixelated and unable to be read like it was obscured or covered up somehow. This has been widely criticized and has caused the hotel to be in the hot seat since day one. They claim to turn the security footage over as is without tampering with it. However, the timestamp looks weird, and then there are many people that believe a whole minute is missing. I can't read the timestamp at all, but some say it looks like the video skips ahead one minute at some point. Some also believe the police edited the video before releasing it to either hide someone from the public, What? That could be who that could be. Nobody can say for sure. Possibly to hide the fact that there was someone else there in general. Either to keep their face out of the public eye because they know they were not a suspect. Or because maybe they were. There are so, so many questions surrounding this video. It is kind of what the case is known for. And it pretty much went viral within the first two weeks of being released to the public. There is a large group of people online that believe this video shows signs of paranormal activity. They believe Elisa sees someone else there with her inside the elevator and possibly outside in the hallway as well. And one thing in particular that has stuck with me is that the elevator door takes forever to close. It doesn't close when Elisa is inside the elevator or when she's standing outside the doorway. It's odd. It does look like she pushes the door open button, and a lot of people believe that, but I don't believe it would have held that long, especially since it seems to close pretty quickly after she walks away. But let's move on to the investigation. So, at this point, police are looking for a missing person. They're not considering homicide at first, but as the days go by, they start to think the worst. The investigation officially starts on February 5th, They do the press conference on February 7th and then release the security footage on the 13th. Now, the LAPD, among other local police departments, including the FBI, conducted a massive search of the Cecil Hotel. They set up a command center in the lobby and claimed to work with hotel staff to search each and every room. In a court document, investigators stated they conducted an extensive and exhaustive search of the hotel They claimed to search every room, every inch inside the hotel, as well as the roof and the surrounding city blocks. They claimed there was no stone unturned. After the huge initial search, a second search was conducted using canine units, and there was no sign of Elisa Lamb. And investigators are at a loss, right? They are coming up with nothing. There is no sign of Elisa leaving the hotel, but there's no sign of her still being there. So where is she? Two weeks go by, and within that two weeks, the hotel starts receiving complaints about low water pressure in their rooms, and eventually start noticing the water has a foul smell and taste. A British couple that was staying at the Cecil during the time said when they would go to turn the sink water on, it would initially run a sort of dark brown or even black, but then it would turn to regular water. A maintenance worker at the hotel, Santiago Lopez, was tasked with trying to figure out what was going on with the water. And after talking to some of the guests, he decided to go up to the roof and check out the water tanks. See, the hotel water comes from four massive water tanks that sit on the roof of the hotel. They each held about a thousand gallons of water. And the tanks sat on like a square platform and... Hotel Steph had to use a ladder to climb up to the opening of each tank to look inside. And when Santiago got to the tanks, he noticed that the hatch was open to the water tank sitting kind of in that back right corner. So he got his ladder and made his way to the top of the tank and peered inside. And what he saw was shocking. Santiago said he looked inside the tank and saw a naked Asian woman dead, lying face up in the water, approximately 12 inches from the top. I'm not sure if Santiago called 911, if someone else did, or if investigators were still at the Cecil in that command center in the lobby, but either way, investigators made their way up to the roof and were able to determine the body in the tank was that of Elisa Lamb. Firefighters had to come in, and the opening in the water tank had to be cut to a bigger opening because the equipment used was too big to get her body out. And this should tell us something. Again, which we'll get into, the issues we all have with the water tank. But either way, they pull Elisa's body out of the tank, and it is sent to the medical examiner's office, for an autopsy. Inside the tank, they found Elisa's clothes, the same clothes she was wearing in the infamous elevator video. The clothes were sent off for testing as well. And it was later determined that the clothes contained sand-like particles, which investigators don't really seem to elaborate on as to where she could have picked up these sandy particles. And the autopsy didn't really do anything to help with that either. The medical examiner, however, did rule that Elisa's death was an accidental drowning. Also, the toxicology report showed no sign of recreational drugs or alcohol in her system, which only makes everything that much more confusing. But now that we've gone over the overall findings, let's get into the issues many people have with Elise's death being ruled an accidental drowning. So, the day Elise's body was found and before the autopsy, investigators stated they weren't ruling out foul play because of the location of her body was, quote, suspicious. And honestly, I think this has been the second biggest issue with this case, first being the elevator footage, of course. But Where her body was found is extremely hard to get to. First of all, these water tanks were on the roof, which is restricted access. The maintenance worker who found her said the doors stay locked. There is an alarm that should have gone off if she tried to open the door on her own. Now, according to the hotel, someone can access the roof through exterior fire escapes. However, if you look at these exterior fire escapes, it's a lot of steps she would have had to take, depending on which floor she started on. And assuming she would have got on at the floor her room was on, that's a lot of steps. Okay? Then there's the water tanks themselves. As I mentioned, there were four tanks sitting in a square pattern on top of the platform. I'll link an aerial view of video of the seesaw that I found on YouTube as well, so you can get a good look at what we're talking about here. But anyways, the tanks are pretty close together. Alisa was small, so yes, she could have made her way through the tanks to get to that back right corner one. But these tanks are 10 feet tall. Santiago said that he had to bring a ladder in order to get to the top of the tank and peer inside the open hatch, meaning there was not a ladder nearby. So, there's no way she could have gotten up there by herself. Now, say she did have a ladder, and investigators just aren't putting that out there. Well, then, there's the hatch. I believe it was Santiago that said the hatch was pretty heavy. And this petite woman supposedly finds a ladder somewhere, puts it up to the tank, climbs to the top, pulls open this super heavy hatch, and then climbs over into the water. Is it possible? Sure. But it just seems like a lot of hard work for someone like her. Then there's the fact her clothes were off and in the water. When the maintenance worker found her, he specifically said her body was floating on top of the water about 12 inches from the top. It doesn't seem like a ton of room to lift her shirt over her head and all of that. And it also seems very difficult to get all of your clothes off while treading water. Unless she took off her clothes before climbing up the ladder and then she just carried them with her. But that doesn't really make sense to me either. Now, before we move on, I know she was on medication for a mental health disorder. And that's why investigators believe she climbed the tank to begin with. But, to me, there are just so many factors that would have made that so difficult for her to do. Which leads a large portion of those that have followed this case to to believe that foul play was involved. And the fact she was on the roof, which is a restricted area for guests, many believe someone at the hotel was involved. And the fact she was on the roof, which is restricted access to guests, many believe someone that worked at the hotel was involved. And many believe she was murdered, whether it was by a hotel worker or not, due to the fact her behavior in the elevator, looking like she's hiding from someone, and of course the location of her body. But investigators now refuse to acknowledge that possibility. They have since said they don't believe foul play was involved here, and they believe due to her mental health issues at the time, she climbed into the tank on her own, wasn't able to get out, and drowned. And honestly, yes, there isn't really any physical evidence pointing to foul play. There was no signs of bruising or any injury at all to Elisa's body. So, yes, that could 100% be the case here. Case closed. But let's get into a couple more conspiracy theories that surround this case. So far, we've got possible murder, paranormal activity, according to some, and then there's the very weird very weird coincidences. First up, we have the fact that the death of Elisa Lamb is eerily similar to the Japanese movie called Dark Water. The movie came out in 2002, and in the movie, a girl is found dead in a water tank. Other people were drinking water with the dead body inside, just like we have here. And one of the weirdest parts is the girl in the movie is wearing a very similar outfit to Elisa Lamb. So due to this, some believe Elisa wanted to recreate the movie or she was murdered by someone else who wanted to recreate the movie. Again, could just be a very weird coincidence, okay? Either way, it is very creepy if you ask me. Now the next conspiracy is even creepier. So a few weeks after Elisa was found dead, an outbreak of tuberculosis covered the Skid Row area. And the test used to determine if someone had tuberculosis was called "Lamb Elisa. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Why? The theory goes that they didn't want a lot of people to know about the TB outbreak. So they made up the death of Elisa Lamb, like she never even existed. We all know the government can do a lot of shady things, okay? And doing something to distract us from something worse is something that I believe happens all the time. There was barely anything on the news about this tuberculosis outbreak, but the Elisa Lamb death was everywhere. So again, is this something that's just some sort of crazy coincidence Or is something else really going on here? Now, y'all, I don't know if I believe the recreating the movie or the TB outbreak conspiracies. I believe Elisa Lam was real, okay? But I can't explain the coincidences either. And if I were to dive too far into the Reddit threads on each of these, I am sure I'd be convinced of both by the end of it. And unfortunately, that is the end of today's episode. Excuse my language, but what the hell happened here? For years, I believed the paranormal stuff. Then I started to believe it was just a manic episode that took place because she wasn't taking her medication properly. But after diving into it again here for the episode, I'm not sure anymore. But I'm dying to know your thoughts on today's case. So be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram page and leave your thoughts, theories, and conspiracies surrounding this one. I enjoyed putting this one together for you guys, but as I mentioned at the beginning, it kind of gave me like a run for my money because I didn't know which way to go with this one. There's just so much out there, so many crazy theories, so many conspiracy theories, convincing ones, but also just a sad situation. But that is going to do it for me this week, guys. I am sad to report that this is going to be the last episode of the year. I plan on taking a break as I'm trying to do from time to time for the podcast. November and December are just the craziest time of the year. And also the 1st of January is my daughter's birthday. So I've got a birthday party to plan. So pray for me there. Um, But I'll be back late January, if not the 1st of February. But as always, follow us on the Instagram page. Be sure to turn on your notifications wherever you listen to this podcast so you can be notified when the next episode is uploaded. But I hope you guys have a great holiday season, a happy and safe Thanksgiving and Christmas, and obviously New Year's as well. I'll be back in 2023. Until then... Stay safe guys, bye.